Hey there. Welcome to the Deeper Podcast, a podcast that's all about how we can have the courage to love the hell out of this world. My name is Reverend Sean, and today on the podcast, we're going to be exploring... If you were hearing this message, you are one of the chosen ones. We don't have much time. We've embedded secret messages in this podcast. Listen carefully. So I think we should just dive right in to today's message. If you can believe it or not, this year marks my 10th year of consistent preaching. And this sermon, the one I'm about to give, has given me more anxiety than any other I've thought about preaching. I haven't been sleeping. There is something about putting yourself out there, giving voice to a conviction that, for the first time, that you know will result in people questioning your sanity, that it sort of kind of tests you. Countless times I have thought to myself, Sean, you shouldn't do it. It's not worth it. Not worth the angry and confused emails that will flood your inbox next week. Not worth the cost to the relational capital. And But even when my resolve wavers, this deep conviction grounds me in my truth. There are times when it's okay to agree to disagree, but this, this, this is not one of them. Like we do sometimes at Foothills, I'm going to deliver this sermon in two parts. And if you're not with me in part one, then just you wait until part two. Okay. Deep breath. During my recent sabbatical, I had an odd realization. A realization of a sensation. A sensation that has been present, present with me my entire life. And because in our tradition, we place as a primary source our experience, our experience as a source of revelation, when it came to my consciousness, I realized that it must be important. So what was this all-important revelation? It was that I've never trusted birds. Like, trusted them in here or here and I know what you're thinking. It's their eyes, right? Those beady black holes of judgment. And you'd be right. But there's more. Their calls, what some people call bird songs, are repetitive, derivative, and just a tad condescending. They sit up in the trees mocking us like a swarm of middle schoolers, chattering to their friends. Look at them, they say. Look how they are stuck to the ground. Look how smushed their beaks are. Let's all start chattering right now. Who cares if it's early in the morning? I'm being serious here. If it was just their eyes and their calls, I might be able to get over it. But it's not. When we go outside, we're surrounded. Birds are everywhere. Birds in the trees, birds in the grass, raptors circling up high, geese, which I read somewhere are evolutionarily related to velociraptors, they invade our parks. The other day, I was stuck in a 10-minute traffic jam because geese were lazily slowing strolling across the road like they owned the place. 
And we're just supposed to accept this avian invasion? Just put up with it? Act like it's not weird? They poop on everything. Cars? They poop on them. Houses? They poop on those. The perfect picnic spot? There's poop there. Sometimes they even poop on you. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Sean, I know you're on to something, but what concerns you most about birds? Well, thanks for asking, firstly. What compels me to devote our sacred hour to the topic, the case against birds, is a deep ethical imperative to expose one of the open secrets that I think we've all experienced, but no one is willing to talk about it. But I refuse to stand in the shadows any longer, and this is what we do here at Foothills. We do hard things. We tell hard truths. So here we go. I was talking to a friend on the phone about this feeling, this distrust of birds that I had this summer, and he said to me, very serious, you should trust that feeling. Because birds, birds aren't real. I sort of blinked, kind of in shock, like, birds aren't real? And then the call disconnected. What did he mean? How could birds not be real? And that's when I started researching. I started with Rachel Carson, the famous conservationist who broke into public awareness how DDT and pesticides were killing birds by the millions. And as I dug deeper, I realized that Rachel Carson, she only got it half right. Yes, DDT was killing the birds, but it wasn't unintentional. The birds were being deliberately killed by the CIA. Now, stay with me. I know it sounds absurd, but it also sort of makes sense, right? This is the CIA, after all. The unhinged government agency responsible for political coups the world over. If they needed to eliminate birds, they could, and they did. It was the 1950s. America was locked in our battle against the Red Square. Anti-communism was sweeping the nation. Uh, the CIA was ramping up their domestic surveillance programs to fight communist infiltration. They were putting audio and video recording devices in key cities. But it was Alan Dulles, the first civilian director of the CIA. His team ran into a limitation. You see, people move, and recording devices didn't. Soviet spies were instructed to meet, to not meet, in one place for a long time, often taking long walks with their informants. So what's an obvious solution? Birds. Birds move. So they got to work. According to uh, various websites, while surveillance technology was in its infancy at the time, teams at the CAA began experiments with attaching recording devices, first just audio, onto 100 birds in the D.C. metro area. The program was unsuccessful only because the birds were resistant to being caught after they completed their recording missions. But this barrier didn't stop the CIA, no. For they realized they had stumbled on the right mechanism in airborne surveillance, but the wrong delivery relying on flesh and blood birds. So what if they made mechanical birds? Well, according to various sources, the CAA contracted Boeing to design mechanical birds that could pass for real creatures. Real creatures that could be inserted into public spaces. Real creatures or robots drones that could have the recordings easily retrieved. 
I mean, it's crazy, right? Government drone birds, but also this is the CIA we're talking about. You could start small. A few prototypes, say. Take the form of common DC birds, rock pigeons, house sparrows, the downy woodpecker. Pigeons could gather together to amplify their recording capacity in large public squares and plazas. House sparrows, ubiquitous in suburban neighborhoods, could surveil the same residential communities unnoticed. It was the woodpeckers, I think, that were a stroke of genius. How do we find birds that could intentionally sabotage or implant additional recording devices? Peck, peck, peck. Now, once the initial prototypes were tested in real-life situations, they could begin the replacement. And so as Carson started to notice the birds disappearing, they began their substitutions, gradually murdering billions of birds and launching the largest foul domestic surveillance program the world has ever seen until they invented Facebook. So to recap, the government murdered all the birds and replaced them with drones. Birds aren't real. Now you may be thinking, this is way too far-fetched, but... Think about it. There's always been that bird that seemed a little too interested in you. Birds are also seemingly drawn to power lines, a convenient mechanism to recharge their nanobatteries. Birds migrate, a convenient time to swap out the new and the old models. I think the last thing that I need to say is that it's also a little suspicious that there is this cult around birds. This is where the mind games go really deep. I mean, how many of you like birds? How many of you go bird watching? How many of you have a favorite bird? The other week I asked on Facebook if people had a favorite bird and within minutes, hundreds of people had responded, which seemed suspicious because my other Facebook posts never resulted in such a robust response. This is bigger than the big bird lobby. It has to be. It wouldn't surprise me if we found out that the government invested in starting bird-watching clubs around the country, literally tricking us to go out and seek our own surveillers. Like, who is watching who, right? Who is watching who? Wake up, people. Bird-watching goes both ways. It's just sick. And so today, today I'm coming out as the real me. I am a bird-truther because I know that birds aren't real. That birds are a lie. Amen and blessed be. There is a story about the Chinese monk Bodai, a quasi-historical figure in Buddhism, otherwise known as the Laughing Buddha, Bodai was well known for his pranks and mischief. And he did not disappoint, even in death. For you see, he knew that he would be cremated when he died. And so as he was dying, he stuffed his pockets with gunpowder and fireworks. So that when his followers gathered around this funeral pyre, ready to honor his transition from this life back into the wheel of samsara, or maybe to escape it altogether, they would be, well, amazed, shocked, surprised even, and 
hopefully burst into fits of laughter as his corpse exploded on the pyre at his own funeral. Boom. I mean, talk about going out with a bang. I love that story. Because too often we, especially white folks, are unwittingly drafted into the cult of overseriousness. Assuming that because life is precious, important, serious, and sacred, that the only response is stoic, reserved, rigid, reverent in a very serious way. Life is serious, but we don't have to be. Because often when we meet life's seriousness in kind, we shut ourselves off from the underworld of delight. Where absurdity fuels pleasure, where mischief breeds playfulness, where tricksters speak the deep truths that we actually need to hear. Every evening at about 5 p.m., my son and I try to trick each other. The game begins when dinner is complete. One of us makes a move, concocting a distraction, at times mundane, at times alluring. Sometimes it's simple as, I think someone's knocking at the back door. The point of the distraction to, is to draw the other person's attention sufficiently astray so that you can beat them in a race up the stairs to be the first person to have your toothbrush adorned with paste and ready to declare war on the sugar bugs. Now, I am not generally a gullible person. But every evening around 5 p.m., let's just say, if you told me that gullible wasn't in the dictionary, I'd probably pull one out just to check. I just don't know what happens to me. I always get so distracted. What I do know is that when we added a little pinch of mischief into the little things, we stop fighting and start playing, turning a repetitive and relatively boring task into the nexus of trickery and delight, and our teeth get brushed. My favorite part of this cat and mouse game we play every evening is the loud cackle that Aiden releases when he's tricked me. A cackle of joyful trickery, pure and simple. Joy in the little things. But in that moment, it's joy in all the things. I wonder how we all can use trickster spirits to revive delight amongst the ordinary. How mischief can unlock laughter. How subverting the sober serious ushers in a different path to delight. For there is a holiness to mischief, a sacredness of disrupting the monotony of the ordinary with injections of absurdity, a, sa a sacrament of upending the status quo, serving eviction notices to the accepted absurdities of the everyday. There's a story about the British philosopher G.E.M. Anscombe, who was invited to give a guest lecture in Boston in the 1960s. 
After the lecture, the faculty took her out to a fancy dinner, and Anscombe was wearing her customary slacks under a long tunic. When she arrived at the restaurant, she was stopped by the head waiter, who informed her that in this particular establishment, women were not permitted to wear trousers. In a brilliant display of deliberate misunderstanding, Anscombe reacted to the waiter's exclamation with cut. And in a brilliant display of deliberate misunderstanding, Amstone reacted to the waiter exclaiming, What an extraordinary rule! and proceeded to remove her trousers on the spot. This is even more amusing when you know that she had a reputation as a rather stern Catholic moralist. Holy mischief disrupts the ordinary and the normative with sparks of laughter, which is another name often for love. For the past four weeks, I have been living in a little experimental and odd world in which I have been pretending that birds aren't real. Let's just be clear. Birds are real. I know that birds are real. But the amount of joy and delight I've experienced in pretending has been immense. Being on the inside of such an extensive and ridiculous joke has filled me with an unending supply of delight. When someone mentions a bird, I have just been muttering under my breath, well, birds aren't real. Birds aren't real. I've been posting cryptic posts on Facebook about having never really trusted birds Sort of fake information about geese being descended from velociraptors. Questioning whether or not other people feel like birds are just watching them. The number of people who've come up to me and started conversations about my feelings about birds is in the dozens. And each time, because I knew I was preaching this sermon, I had to stop my face from breaking and giving up the joke. It's hard to explain logically because the delight is derived from the realm of the absurd, from the mischievousness, from subversiveness. Now, birds aren't real is a real thing. It's a satirical movement that started in 2017 when a young college student, Peter McIndoe, was attending the Women's March in Memphis. He noticed a group of counter-protesters promoting hate, and on a whim, he grabbed a poster and wrote the most ridiculous thing he could imagine. Birds aren't real. He then proceeded to clown around in front of the hate-filled protesters, meeting their absurdity with his own. Little did he know, though, that a video of him would go viral on Facebook. Suddenly, he was the guy who didn't believe in birds. Thrusting him into the spotlight of the internet, the nexus of conspiratorial thinking that has birthed Pizzagate and QAnon. We live in a time when we are primed to distrust, to both ridicule the guy with the birds aren't real sign, but also because we've lived through enough that we are, that we constantly question ourselves. Like, am I missing something? Is someone pulling the wool over my eyes? Are birds not actually real? There is a madness that comes with facing this reality, Peter explained. And a lot of people feel the madness and don't really have a way to express it. The 
viral moment brought attention and exposed the possibility for something greater, and Peter and a few of his friends dove in. What if they started a satirical conspiracy theory, a, quote, mirror to what everyone was feeling, part coping and therapeutic, part social commentary? This started a five-year deep social experiment. With chapters sprouting across the country, rallies in dozens of cities, and Peter became his character, never publicly breaking from his belief, even in media interviews, that birds were not real, that they've been replaced by drones. He drew inspiration from the type of thinking that was common in his sheltered, conservative, evangelical homeschooling upbringing. But the question you might be asking is, why would anyone want to be a part of a movement like this? In an interview from, with the end of the cut, in an interview with the New York Times, Peter reflected, I've come to look at it just like a real symptom of a greater sickness in our society, that there is a void of meaning in a lot of ways, and people are reaching just desperately for any community. Now, no one shows up at a birds aren't real rally believing that birds aren't real. They show up to take up a character joyfully shouting, birds, 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 lie, 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 parroting the sounds of other conspiracies. But this time, they're on the inside of a joke exposing the absurdity of modernity. As Peter says, birds aren't real is almost like an igloo in a snowstorm, if that makes sense. It's kind of like a place where people can kind of make shelter out of the same type of material that causes the chaos, given that people can take misinformation and use it as a place to safely process misinformation. I think comedy is very disarming, a very disarming form of communication, and it allows people to come together and laugh at these things that in everyday life are terrifying. And there's something about laughing at these things that breaks the illusion of the monster. Conspiracy theories and conspiratorial thinking is not new. It's ancient. It preys on our most basic animal tendencies of anxiety and fear. What I noticed as I steeped myself in the words of world of birds aren't real, I noticed the ways that conspiracies play into feelings of isolation, vulnerability, how they use twisted logic that may convince you for a moment and that's enough to draw you in to belonging. You go from being a victim to being a hero. In playing in this playground, there was an inoculation effect of being exposed to the same tactics, but done with no malicious intent, I began to notice how these same tactics showed up in public discourse, in fad trends or political rants on many sides of the political spectrum. It gave me a new appreciation and delight and joy in what we might do if we centered joy and mirth, even in these serious times. Bird brigades, that's what a group of people who believe in birds aren't real, are called. They've also shown up in the public sphere. They've shown up at anti-abortion protests in Texas, standing shoulder to shoulder with anti-choice protesters with their fake and graphic images that bird brigades just began chanting, birds aren't real, birds aren't real. 
as if they were somehow on the same side of the protest as the anti-abortion. A cacophony of comedy and absurdity which caused those anti-choice protesters to eventually pack up and leave. They couldn't be heard over the joy and the delight and the absurdity of the protesters. In the book of delights, Ross Gay writes, Today I have smuggled three fake cuttings onto a flight from Philadelphia to Detroit. Truth be told, no smuggling has occurred. Given as I was carrying the things, open and notorious, their roots tucked into some moist compost in a plastic bag. But smuggling makes it sound more thrilling than what it appears, carrying a few sticks in a bag, and therefore more like what it is, carrying living creatures for replanting about 700 miles away. Often, white folks and religious liberals like Unitarian Universalists default to spiritual practice that privileges reserved noticing over embodied experiencing and expressing. When our lives are ordered and understood and clear, we can relax and exhale. Our gratefulness moment at the end of each service is a perfect example. But behind that restraint is often a fear. Fear of the way the unhinged and the uncontrollable might topple the apple cart on top of us, leaving us uncomfortable and confused. Maybe how some of you felt during part one of the sermon. But if we are to face the real challenges of the day, we must be able to respond to the experience of discomfort with playfulness, not fear. If we cannot experience something we don't understand or endure being discomforted by someone spouting nonsense, how on earth are we going to love the hell out of this world? Can I get a name, man? We got to be spacious enough to unclench, to stop assuming that white knuckling our way through life is the morally superior path or mistaking tidiness with godliness. Trickster teachers, holy mischief, invites us into an underworld of delight accessible everywhere when we add just a little twinkle and a little holy mischief to our lives. Let's make it so. Amen. I wasn't completely lying when I said at the top of the message that I was a little bit worried about preaching this sermon. But it wasn't because I was worried that some people would actually think by the end of it that I didn't believe in birds or that I was some conspiracy nut job. I was worried because of the nature of the conversation, the nature of what we were going to do in worship, which was going to be not serious. It was going to be kind of silly, kind of ridiculous, definitely satirical. And that sort of texture 
is not what we expect often when we come to worship. We expect something solemn, something reverent, something more stoic, especially in our predominantly white Unitarian Universalist community. And so stepping across that into the ridiculous, into the the mocking, but also point-making, where we spent at least 10 minutes of mostly just laughing, was a stretch. And I worried that someone would come to church and it wouldn't be the thing they would need it because they were searching for something else. And yet I know so often when I'm going to church, I don't always need something stoic. I often need something lighthearted that illuminates something true about the world. So that's what I was worried about. I did receive an angry email from someone. It went something like this. Dear Reverend Sean, after your service on Sunday, the case against birds, I wanted to write you an angry congregant email. This is an email. It is angry. It is from a congregant. It is an email. The person goes on to say that a few years they found a birds aren't real sticker somewhere and looked them up online with a great deal of skepticism. Now, clearly it was a joke, satire of the insanity. But no, he thought, these people were serious. They organized protests. Some people in this country are even loathed to do so for a great cause to show the world how anti-bird they were. You know, they had this elaborate social media presence and a growing national network of chapters. He began convinced, quote, that they were convinced of their position, willful, flat-earth, Alex Jones type. So I stopped looking into it and just started decided that I would be more politically pro-bird than I had been in my very bird-neutral past. He goes on to say, I think the thing that upset me most about your service was seeing how far I had fallen into the great trap of life that you illuminated over seriousness. Where did that playful person go? I miss that guy. I think I'm going to go looking for him. I so appreciated hearing that message because as uh, an adult... As a father, often I can get stuck in that same trap. I think we all can. I think it's too easy for us to think that because things are serious, we have to be. And that how somehow bringing in that laughter, that twinkle, that playfulness somehow undermines what we're doing. And yet when you look at the people that you'd want to emulate... Most often, at least the people I want to emulate, are people whose lives are filled with a degree of joy and a degree of not taking themselves too seriously, combined with a real commitment to, to justice and, and, and to love. And that love is not just the outcome, it's how we do it. And that, of course, includes, includes joy along the way. And that it's not something we can put off. It's actually fundamental to find it in the little things. Because the little things are what come together to create the big things. Not only in our hearts, but in the world around us. I've so been enjoying this series that we've been doing, The Little Things. And I hope you uh, stick around for next week. And we're going to be exploring what does it mean to be going into a holidays, to be going into all of the chaos and the family dynamics or the aloneness potentially, that that might ensure. And what are some skills that we can use to remember in the little things to find, to find delight, to find connection, to find love. So I hope you'll tune back in next week 
as always, it's such a pleasure to get to come to you in this way, wherever you are, whether you're on your commute, doing some chores, maybe you're listening to this because you're in a small group that's going to be talking about this soon. However you're connected in, we're so grateful. We're, we are able to do this because of people like you who support us financially. If you are not one of those people, we'd still love you to become a courageous love activist. You can do that by going to foothillsuu.org slash courageous love. When you become a courageous love activist, you're making a financial commitment to supporting who we are right now in the world. And by doing that, we are able to keep putting on shows like this, keep bringing our message of be more gay, of unleashing courageous love, of everyone is worthy of love and belonging, that no one is illegal, that there should be sanctuary everywhere. We can bring these messages to more and more people, inviting them into this movement for love that we are called to be a part of. So thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of it.